Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faith Lead Book Hub. My name is Leanne Pomrenke on the Faith Lead team, and we are joined today by authors Drew Tucker, Susan Maros, and Tim K. Snyder to help us think about meaningful work and faithful understandings of vocation. I would like to introduce our next author. Uh, Susan Maros teaches Christian leadership for Fuller Theological Seminary and her book, Calling in Context, Social Location and Vocational Formation, asks the question, how has your context shaped your assumptions about vocation? Susan, thank you for being with us here today. Well, thanks, Leanne. And it's so good to be with you all and to talk about this subject of work that means something. It's something that this is a topic that I think we come back to, you know, sometimes we get settled on, but then another season comes around and we're thinking about it again. And then we have people around us who are all, all wrought up about the subject, not just the young adults that Drew is dealing with, but all sorts of adults. Um, so I'm glad to be here and, and, and have an opportunity to share on the subject. Uh, let me start by saying a little bit about how I got into thinking about work and calling and vocation um, and how I think about it before I deal with calling and vocation formation in the middle part of life. So I, I've been teaching now in higher ed for about 25 years, and most of that time I've worked with adult learners. So even when I was teaching undergrad, you know, the average age of the adult of the my undergrad students was 31. So, so I've had your traditional, the folks that Drew is is talking about and, and is serving with. I've I've engaged those folks too, uh, and yet a lot of my work has been with uh, adult leaders, um, adult learners who are in context, who may be pastoring a church, who have a family who who have a career or a, a work history. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the formation of leaders. How does God form people across a lifetime? You know, what does that look like? And when I say leader, I do want to identify that I am talking about leader in the formal sense, right, where you have a, a job that involves influencing people, but I'm also talking about leaders in the informal sense, where you exercise influence, you, you are engaging a group of God's people towards God's purposes for that group, but you may, may not be doing it with a job title. So leader encompasses both in my mind. And when I'm talking about calling, um, well, so with that group, let me say, uh, I encountered a lot of anxiety, right? So it's one thing to have a 19-year-old thinking, okay, what should my major be? Or should I go to school at all? And, or should I work? And what should my job be? And those are important questions. Uh, but the questions don't end, which is sometimes discouraging to the 19 year olds. Uh, but 29 year olds and 39 and, and 49 and 59 year olds are asking questions about what should I be and what should I do? Uh, and I was noticing how much anxiety was present in those questions. And so I, I did some research that became my dissertation and continued to work and that became the book. And so that's the origins of it is kind of what's going on. And, and Leanne summarized it really well, but I wanted to highlight two things um, from the book because it, it really um, undergirds how I think about work and calling. 
uh, and it has it, it's embodied in the subtitle of the book, Social Location and Vocational Formation. So in terms of social location, Leanne put it very succinctly, you know, I really am interested in how context shapes us. That the geography, geographically where I live, the, the kind of church that I attend or faith community I'm a part of, uh, the fact that I live in the United States. You know, I'm also a missionary kid. I spent some of my early years in Brazil, and yet I've spent most of my life in the United States. And there are multiple times where I'm engaging people from other countries, and it's like, oh yes, I'm a U.S. American. You know, it just it has formed me. It has formed how I look at the world, the perspectives I have, the things I assume. Um, my defaults are just there because this is the context that I'm in, and and I believe all of those contexts are used by God as part of God's forming us to be involved with God's work in the world. So that those particularities are important. You know, the, the gospel is universal. The people who engage it are particular and we're all particular and, and that matters. Uh, in some ways, those particularities are the blessing and the gift that God has shaped and formed in us, that God has given us by our context, the, the blessings of our context. Sometimes it's also the, the hindrance. Um, Sherwood Lingenfelter talks about culture as both prison and palace. You know, there's a gift and there, there can be a, a blockage, you know, and that affects what we understand about work and it affects what we understand about calling and vocation because there's some assumptions that are at work in our context that form the lenses through which we interpret our life experience. Uh, and I find that really significant to, to reflect on, to take a look at, to consider what kind of particular person am I? What is my distinctive experience? What is my come from? You know, I look at the world from a particular standpoint, and that matters to identify that, not to enforce that as the norm for everybody else, but to be clear, no, this is what the world looks like from where I stand. So that's social location. Now, vocational formation I think of calling and vocation as synonymous, and I, I recognize that that's not true in every context. We have plenty of contexts in the U.S. where they're, they're considered separately. You know, your vocation is about your work, your occupation that you do to earn a living, and calling is about what God is asking you to do, and then the conversation becomes, how did the two connect? I tend to see them as theologically synonymous because the word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. So theologically, I see the connection, even, if, even while acknowledging that socially and culturally in our, our various contexts, they may not be synonymous. And for me, vocation is rooted and vocation formation is rooted in the Missio Dei. It's God at work in the world. So I see vocational formation as the lifelong process of discerning and responding to God's invitation to participate with God's work in the world. So you can see some of my theological biases there, right? I see God as actively engaged in the world. I see us as, as God's people invited by God to participate with that, be actively engaged. And so how do we discern that? And how do we respond to that? And I see it as a lifelong process. It's There are moments of, of significant insight and ahas and, oh, I, I think I see a trajectory. Uh, I think it's a hindrance, actually, when we when we limit our understanding of vocation and work to that one trajectory setting moment that that establishes the entirety of our life. Uh, I think it's more helpful to think about it as a journey and an ongoing process of formation. So, having said that, let me let me just say uh, something about 
what I see going on in midlife. And this is not the whole sum of everything that can be said about midlife, but th these are some things that I, I notice from working with in-service leaders that I notice from my own life and my own formation and experience uh, that, that I, I wanna highlight for your reflection. So I'm thinking midlife, I'm thinking maybe as early as late 30s or so, 40s and 50s, certainly. Um, and what is vocational formation? What's distinctive about our formation in midlife? Well, I think a, a significant part of that is in midlife, there comes a point where we have to come to grips with what life actually is rather than what we expected it to be. Okay, there's a reality check at some point. And, and I think we have those kind of reality checks along the way. I, I don't think it just happens one time and then we're done. Or uh, yeah, it, it, it is, I think we pause and reflect on our lives at multiple points in our lives, but there is something distinctive about midlife. When there's that moment that you realize, oh, um, I was always thinking someday I will, and there's not a someday. Like this is the life I have. The life I dreamed of is, is a figment of my imagination. I have this life, not another life that I might've hoped for or that other people might've expected of me. And what do I do about that? How do I think about that? There are possibly internal expectations. You know, I thought I would be further in my career. I thought I would be married. I thought I would have kids or I have kids and I thought they would be different than the kids I actually have. Or I, I, I am married, but this is not the marriage I thought I would have. Or, or I love my job. I've had this, I've done this work for 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And I love it on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's just something about it. It's the well is run dry, you know, and, there, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not content. There's a, this internal dissatisfaction. Now I want to point to uh, psychologist Eric Erickson when he talks about the, the developmental agenda of midlife. He talks about the challenge of generativity versus stagnation. And that's, that's what's going on here in the middle of life. You know, it's about uh, procreativity, productivity, creativity. It's about the, how, how, what are we giving to another generation? And that might be a literal another generation of our own children, but it could be also another generation of believers, another generation in our cities and our towns. It could be another generation of, in our, in our particular occupation. Uh, and we're thinking, how do we think about being generative? And, and what where does that sit in us? Uh, you probably know, like I know, people who have gone the stagnation route, right? Where they, where they calcify and become brittle and, and stuck in a particular spot and then rather demanding that everybody else be stuck in that spot. You know, and this is, this is this, this challenge between generativity and stagnation. Something that a lot of people encounter in some time in middle life is, is a confrontation with one's limits, with a limits of your body, with the limits of your soul, with both of them saying enough, this is enough, I'm done, no more. It could be an illness, a chronic illness, um, or an encounter with some, something, you know, high blood pressure, something going on that's a chronic thing in our bodies. It could be a life crisis that might be internal, it might be external. You know, it could be that we are in a situation where there's a a natural disaster or an act of violence or something that is incredibly disruptive. 
It could be much quieter than that. It could be an internal restlessness or an encounter with burnout. Uh, it could be depression, diagnosed or undiagnosed, where it, it's, it really is our bodies and our souls saying that treadmill that you've been on for 20 or 30 years now, I've had enough, like enough. And we're culturally pressed. There's a cultural expectation that we're supposed to double down and do more. That what we're supposed to do is just amp it up. And what we need is, I don't know, a career coach and we need to listen to some motivational speakers and get some good self-help books and we just need to work harder and we'll get through this. And what, what I want to invite us to recognize is that, that that no, I'm done, this is enough that comes to our souls and to our bodies is God's invitation to a holy unraveling. Richard Rohr talks about the invitation to the second half of life into the discovery of our true self. Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick talk about the inner journey to the wall where there's a loss of certainty. This is an invitation. Our cultural context, our family, our, our internal expectations might say, no, 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 no. You're supposed to keep doing more. It's produce more, attain more, work harder. But the spirit of God in us is inviting us to discern the holy no, to say, no, I, I can't keep doing that. I can't continue at that pace. I can't, I can't meet those expectations. I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna satisfy XYZ external expectations and the inward journey of saying, I've internalized some expectations that are toxic for me. And I am working and working and laboring and there is, I'm, I'm dying, the, the well has gone dry. And that's a gift in the middle part of life when we encounter that. We don't often get preached that. We certainly, you know, a lot of, lot of things I heard when I was a young adult was about God has great plans for your life. You're going to make a difference in the world. And, the, and I still believe that, but I also Fine. in the middle of life, I'm coming to grips in a more profound way that God invites us to participate because God loves us and wants to be with us, not because there are umpteen tasks that somehow we have to get done. And so learning to discern that internal no that says, no, I, I can't. I will not meet those expectations, internal and external expectations. No, I'm not going to double down on that. And what does that look like? And what does that mean for our work, for our families, for the ways that we engage with God's work in the world? So I'll, I'll close with these points of reflection for you, with these reflection questions. What is the holy no for you right now? What's stirring in your soul? the invitation, God's invitation to a holy no. What dreams and expectations do you need to grieve? There's a way through. You're not, we're not done. Middle life, we're not done. But there is an invitation into a, into a, a true self, into discovering and living out fully of who we are and that our work and our vocations meld together. All of those things are in harmony together. 
And to get there, one of the things that we are going to need to do is to grieve and let go of some expectations. So what dreams and expectations do you need to grieve? And along the way, what support do you need? For some of us, our workplaces will not be happy for us to say no. Our families will not be happy for us to say no. Our communities will not be happy for us to say no. No is not an acceptable word. But to be faithful and integrous and responsive to the spirit of God, we're going to have to say no. So where are we going to find support for that? Who's going to walk with us? Maybe there's somebody you already know who you can talk through, and they're not going to give you a pep talk. They're going to accompany you. Or maybe you need to find that accompaniment. Maybe it's a spiritual director. Maybe it's a, a group, a, a discernment group of some sort. Maybe it's a friend. Find the support. Somebody who will walk with you and accompany you through the inward journey to reflect on the holy no. Because we are on a lifelong process of discerning and responding to God's invitation to participate with God's work in the world in all the contexts of our life. And part of that is that deep inward formation. So I bless you in the process of discerning and walking into it.